Hello and welcome to another edition of Deeper. It is great to have you with us today and uh, it's just me today. I thought we'd just have a change and we're going to be looking at the passage I preached on on Sunday which is Numbers 13 verse 26 chapter 14 verse 4 as part of our series that we called Wilderness Wanderings where we look at the story of the people of Israel as they leave Egypt and then 40 years later enter into or stand on the edge of the promised land. It's 40 years of wandering in the desert. And it just seems like for many of us, we feel a little bit like that at the moment, unsure about the future, things feel a little bit barren. And I just thought it would be fun to look at these stories and see what we could learn out of them. And so today, uh, let's look at our passage. I'd love you to read it. Numbers 13, uh, verse 26, all the way through to chapter 14, verse 4. Press pause, read the passage, and then restart the video. So what we have is uh, the people are at the edge of the promised land. And you can imagine their excitement. This is the land that God had promised the people of Israel hundreds of years earlier when he spoke to Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation and I will give you a land. This is that land. And it's taken hundreds of years to, to get to this point. And here they are. And you can imagine the excitement. And even though God didn't ask them to do this, the people of Israel decide to, to send in 12 men to, to check out the lands and to see what it's like. So they choose one man from each tribe and send them in. And then 40 days later, these men come back. And this is that story now. And uh, they come back and they, they show the people of Israel the fruit that they have gathered. And they show them grapes. And it, um, it's in verse 23 of chapter 13, it describes how these grapes need to be carried by two people. It's not that the grapes themselves were large. It's that it's a cluster of grapes. In other words, lots and lots and lots of bunches all gathered together into just off one branch. And you can still see grapes like that today in the Middle East. And it would have taken two men to carry it. It was just so full of, of this beautiful grape. And uh, that would have brought a lot of joy to people because not only do you eat grapes, you make wine from grapes. So that would have been a lot of uh, fun for them. And they bring pomegranates and figs and they show all this produce to the people of Israel. And they say in the next verse, in verse 27, this truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. And that phrase, as I said on Sunday, simply implies a land that is abundant and fruitful and fertile. And this is the land that they're going to. This is the land that, that when God brought them out of Egypt, he described it as flowing with milk and honey. In fact, that phrase is used over 20 times in the Bible to talk about a land that is productive and effective and beautiful. It's always positive. In fact, uh, Moses again used that phrase 40 years later, when there is a new generation of Israelites all standing on the edge of the promised land. And he says to them, look, go and enter this land. It is flowing with milk and honey. And so they describe this land. And it's, uh, it's you can imagine people get more and more excited. In verse 27, though, they, they say a strange thing. They say, these 12 spies, they say, we went to the land where you sent us. Which is kind of statements of the obvious, isn't it? But it's almost perhaps 
kind of lining things up for later on. It's like they're saying, look, remember you sent us to do this because we've got great news and we've got bad news. Remember you sent us to do this. And perhaps as we'll see in a moment, they're lining them up to, to fail. And so they say, you sent us to do this. This truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. But then in verse 28, they say, but here's the bad news and it's not good. And they list off this litany of things that are obstacles to them entering the land. And what are those things? Well, despite God's faithful promise, they could enter the land and all those kind of things. The 10 at least of these uh, spies saying, yeah, but you know what? The people in this land are very powerful. In other words, although there's lots of different tribes there, the tri tribes are, are well-organized and they're structured and they, they've probably got their own fighting men. And in other words, they would not be easy to conquer. And the cities they live in are fortified and strong. And we know that, don't we? Because when we read uh, in Joshua, when they do enter the land, it takes them a while to conquer these cities. Just think of Jericho. And then they say, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And Anak was a tribe of, of very tall men. Uh, quite intimidating. And then they say, the Amalekites live there, the Hittites live there, the Jebusites live there, the Amorites, sorry, the Amorites live there, and the Canaanites live there as well. In other words, the land's full. There's, there's no space. And maybe the people of Israel were thinking they could go in and just have a portion of land where they could live peacefully. And that's not the case. If they were to, to take the land that God had promised, it would have to be in some time and in some place by force. So these, so these 10, they kind of list off this terrible litany of things that are obstacles and hurdles. And you can imagine the crowd getting a little bit raucous at this point as they hear this news. There's a little bit of a kerfuffle. I love that word. And, um, and yet one man stands up, Caleb. He stands up and silences the crowd, it says. All the, the chatter that was going on, all the, the, the kind of the, the exclamations of, of worry and concern, he silences them. And he says this, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. What a man of faith he is. Here is a man who saw the same thing as the others, but still believes that they have a future there. Here's a man who is looking at this situation with the eyes of faith, not with the eyes of fear. And we need to learn from that, don't we? See, we will all face those kind of issues, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. And so he, he silences them and he says, look, we can, we can do it. And then in verse 31, the other men say, no, we can't. We can't attack these people. They're too strong for us. And then in verse 32, it says this terrible thing, that they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. So despite having said it is a beautiful land, it is fruitful and we can thrive there and all those kind of things, they start to spread a bad report. What are they saying? Well, they say the land we explored devours those living in it. 
We have no idea what they meant by that, but it's clearly not true. Because the you got the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, they're all living there quite happily. The land is not devouring them. In fact, those tribes are all flourishing there. They're doing very well. They're strong people, so how can the land be devouring them? The land isn't. They are simply spreading false rumours to convince the people to not face the battle ahead. Uh, and then they exaggerate the size of the people living there. It says, we felt like grasshoppers before them. And then they throw in, just for extra measure, this word Nephilim. We saw the Nephilim living there. And who are the Nephilim? Well, we don't know much about the Nephilim. They seem to be uh, perhaps not even human. They are described in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Nephilim simply means giant, so they were very tall. Uh, or it could perhaps also mean, or comes from the root for the word fallen. And as an ancient Jewish tradition says, they were fallen angels. And of course, they, they weren't living there. If they were living there, they'd have mentioned them in their first report, not in the whispers behind closed doors, not in behind people's backs, not in little groups as they conspired to, to not go into this land. What they're doing is spreading fake news. Here we are, 3,000 years ago, maybe more, and the fake news existed then, just like it does now. And they're spreading fake news to convince people to not go into this land, to step back and to not face the battle. And they're doing what everyone who produces fake news does, trying to get their own way, whatever the cost. And then we see in verse uh, chapter 14, verse 1 onwards, that all the people wept. All their expectations, all their hopes have been dashed because of the report that's come back. And of course, they're not listening to Caleb. They're listening to the other ten. And we see later on how Joshua, who's one of the others, he speaks up with Caleb to enter into the promised land. And of course, it's only those two out of all of that generation of Israelites who are still alive 40 years later as they come back to the promised land and enter into it. And then in verse 2, chapter 14, we see that word that we've seen a lot. They grumbled. And of course, you know, when, when things aren't going well, people do that, don't they? When things aren't going your way, we all want a little grumble about something. And of course, we need to grumble about someone. And so they grumble against Moses and Aaron. And uh, they start to get a little bit deverish and a bit drama queenish. And they say, if only we had died in Egypt, if only we had died in the desert rather than fall by the sword in this land. Completely forgetting that here they are, they're alive and they're free. And they've got their whole futures ahead of them. They've got God on their side. And all they're saying is, if only we had died back there. Let's go back to slavery to Egypt. See, slavery can get such a hold on people. I'm not simply talking about that kind of physical slavery, but the slavery to sin can have such a hold on us that it's so easy to go back to that. And so they start to cry out and they start to moan and to grumble. And the, you know, the one thing the Israelites at this point seem to be really good at is grumbling. 
and they need to take it out on someone. So they take it out on Moses. Let's have a new leader. Someone who will speak nice words to us. Someone who will take us to a place of comfort and ease. Rather than fulfil the will of God. And of course what they're doing is completely missing out on, on God at this point. They are so overwhelmed by the, the situation that lay ahead of them. They've taken their eyes off God. They show a complete lack of trust in God. Who has brought them so far and through so much. They don't trust him to enter into this new land. They had just defeated the biggest empire of the time. And now they face different tribes and different cities, all of which are less powerful than Egypt. And they can't believe that God can overcome those tribes and those cities. They have a complete lack of understanding of who God is and how sad that is. But what does all this mean for us? How do we apply some of this? So let's go a little bit wider. So there's lots of things I can take out of this passage, I don't know about you, but maybe in your uh, groups you could talk about all the things that you want to draw out. Let me just bring out some. The first thing that struck me was it is so much easier to knock down and destroy faith than it is to build up. Even though the Israelites had been so much through so much with God, they'd seen God do incredible things, powerful things, miracles that would astound all of us. They had seen this and yet still couldn't believe that God would do the next thing. And they believed the reports of the ten rather than the report of the two. And you know, our words have such power, don't they? And I know what it's like in my life when people speak negatively and pessimistically about the future or about God or about my situation or whatever. It drags me down and takes, uh, takes something away from my faith. You know, to enter into all that God has in store for us, as I said on Sunday, isn't easy. Jesus described it as the narrow path. And few take it. The wider path, the easier path, the more comfortable path. Everyone goes down that way. And that leads to destruction. And if we're to be a people of faith, we need to be people who encourage one another to fulfil and to step forward in that faith. Our words have the power to build faith as well as knock it down. It's easy to knock someone's faith. It's absolutely the easiest thing in the world. It's much harder to build one another up. And you know, Caleb, he was realistic about what was ahead. He never denies that the people in the land weren't strong or the cities weren't fortified or even that they weren't tall. He never denies that. He simply says that with God we can. With God we can. That was his belief. And we need to hold on to that kind of attitude. We have to be realistic about the things we face in our life and the things that others face in their lives, but also face them with faith and to speak faith to each other. You know, we don't know what our future holds right now, do we? We, we don't even know when the shops will be open. Hopefully, maybe sometime next week we will. But what does the future hold? We don't know. 
but we can enter into the future with faith, believing that God will act, believing that God will lead us forward and that we will be able to take possession of all that God has in store for us. And that's why the community of faith is so important. You know, the idea that we can just be individuals walking the path with Jesus is in, I mean, I, I struggle with that a lot because the scriptures talk about us being a community more than anything else. And a lot of the verses that we take on as being individual, when you actually look at the Greek, they are communal, they are corporate, they are this group together. And we need to understand the power of being able to encourage one another in faith, to build one another up in our faith, to see each other thrive and to grow rather than to pull each other down. There is power to the words that we have and we need to use that power for God's purposes. I think there's something else there for me as well in this passage about expectation. I think anyone expecting their walk with God to be easy is is deluded or misinformed. Nowhere in scripture does it say that. In fact, just the opposite. Time and time again, Jesus talks about how following him was never going to be easy. In fact, he talks about the possibility of persecution for all of us. And we have to come into the Christian life with the expectation that life will not be easy. God never promised us a bed of roses. When we get to heaven, well, that's a different thing. But here and now, it will be a struggle. And we need to understand that and expect that so that when really big difficulties come our way, we are not phased by them like the Israelites are here. We have to have the right expectations of the Christian life in order to thrive in it. And all too often I've seen people start off their Christian life absolutely on fire and then the moment something goes wrong, it all fizzles out. And I'm sure you've seen that too. It's about expectation. The third thing that comes out here is how hard it is to take your eyes off the problems and to put them back on God. For the Israelites here, they, they just couldn't see past the fortified cities and the large annexed people and all those kind of things. They just couldn't see past that. Even though their, their journey over a very short period of time being one filled with miracles and wonder, the power of those obstacles just threatened, threatened them and overwhelmed them. And it takes a conscious effort when we are facing obstacles to look back to God. It takes us to it takes all of us to put our, our mind back into a place where we are focused on God. It takes all of our effort and all of our energy. It means that we have to search the scriptures and come back to prayer and make sure that we are putting our eyes on Jesus, not our problems. Because when God calls us to do something, he will give us everything we need to do that. And God calls us to live an abundant life, a life in all its fullness. John chapter 10, verse 10. And if that wasn't possible, he wouldn't ask us to do it. But to get to that fullness of life, you have to overcome the obstacles. You have to deal with the issues. And so you have to be prepared for the struggle and keep your eyes on Jesus through that. The other thing I have to get out of this as well is 
But you know what? We all feel a bit like grasshoppers at some point, especially when it comes to, to the work of God. I can't tell you how many times when I've had God's asked me to do something or I am serving him in the church in some way and I feel way too small, way too small to be able to do it. We're all a bit like grasshoppers at times. But that doesn't matter because it's not about us. It's about God. And God can use grasshoppers for whatever purpose he likes. God takes the weakest and uses them to embarrass the strongest. We have to realise that it's not about us. It's about what God can do through us. And time and time again, I've had to learn that and relearn it and relearn it again. I'm sure you're the same. Remember, when you face a task that makes you feel small, it is simply an opportunity for God's power to be revealed in you. And we see that 40 years later, when Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land and they take on all of these strong people in all these fortified cities and overwhelm them in the power of God. And we, the, the other thing I had to get out of this is, I talked about this on Sunday, the need for courage. And it's so easy to be fearful at times, isn't it? Especially in the environment that we are in right now. And I've talked about this on, a, on numerous occasions. We live in an environment that's filled with fear. But we need to be a people who are courageous. Because God is calling us into fullness of life. God is calling us into a life that is filled with his wonder and his joy. Not a life that is constrained and restricted and confined. And to do that, we need to be courageous. We need to overcome our fears. And uh, on Sunday, Andrew reminded us, I mean, I'd forgotten all about it, but just the, the phrases that were used to, for Joshua as he, he entered into the promised land 40 years later. You know, be bold, be strong, be strong and very courageous. And time and time again, those words come up and come up and come up, both from Moses to Joshua and from God to Joshua. And so he leads courageously and boldly the people of Israel into the promised land. And we need to be like that too. God has so much in store for us. God has it all mapped out for us. And we can take possession of that if only we are courageous. And believe in God with all of our heart for the things that he has promised for us and it is never about us it is always about him it's not about what we can do but what he can do through us so let's just think about some questions you can uh, reflect on either uh, on your own or in your mission community so let's go a little bit further So I've got four questions for you. And uh, the first one is a kind of reflection on the story. Uh, how would you have responded to the two different reports from the spies when you heard them? It's, uh, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because would you have simply reacted like everyone else? Uh, would you have been swayed by Caleb? Uh, what would have swayed you either way? Uh, just spend a bit of time just thinking about that. How would you have felt? What would have gone on in your mind? Second question is this, uh, when have you felt like a grasshopper 
when doing the work of God. And we've all felt like that at some point. And the kind of second half of that was, how did that go? Did it go well? Uh, was it a disaster? Uh, just share the stories. Fourth question, sorry, third question. Uh, describe a time when someone's words built you up in faith. And what have you learned from that experience? Because I think it's good to reflect on the good times when people have built us up. It's easy to remember the bad times when people have knocked us down in faith. What have been the good things? What did they do? How did they say things? What kind of things did they say that built your faith up? And the final question. What giants are you facing in your life right now? And what are you going to do about them? So there you go, four questions to reflect on on your own or in your missional communities. Uh, if you're not in the missional community, do please join in with one. Uh, let me also encourage you uh, to join in with our Lent uh, practice. We're ca calling it Practicing Gratitude. And we're encouraging you to read a book, uh, which is Radical Gratitude by Pete Maiden. Uh, and to uh, start making time each day to make a list of those things that you just want to thank God for. And uh, sometimes that can be harder on some days than on others. So make it a practice throughout Lent. And let's learn how to be thankful for all that we've got. And we do have so much to be thankful for, don't we? It's so easy to grumble. It's so easy just to look at the negatives. Let's just lift our hearts by focusing on the positive things that are going on. The things that we can be thankful for. So take time. Start uh, on Wednesday, uh, which is the beginning of Lent. And let's practice gratitude together. And if you want to discuss the book in a, in a book club, we're setting them up um, over, over the next week or so. We're setting them up. And it'd be great, wouldn't it, just to be able to discuss the book together and to, to learn from each other on that. So let me encourage you to uh, get the book and to join a book club. So do please join us on Sunday. Uh, it's been great to see so many people uh, watching the, the service. And, of course, join us again next Tuesday for Deeper. So until then, take care and stay safe. Bye now.